Hi guys, so before I start the episode today, a few little small announcements. First, I want to say that I am one play away from 200 plays, and that is super exciting for me, just personally. Um, also want to say I am so happy I had my first listener reach out to me on social media and just let me know that this podcast has really helped her throughout her classes and that has made me so happy i know like i wish i had a podcast like this to listen to whenever i was going through my classes and that just made me feel really happy so you know if you have the same experience or you just want to reach out I wanted to say that I have created an Instagram specifically for this podcast because I know that I say like, oh, you can look this up online or, oh, you can find a diagram of this online. That's not always convenient. So I have created a podcast. It's making a dietitian. It's going to be like making underscore a underscore dietitian. It's on Instagram. Um, You can follow it. And I only have one post up right now. It's just about the macronutrients episode. And I'm going to try and make a post for each episode up to this point and um, try and keep up with that. So there will be more to come for that. And if you want to reach out, if you want to message me on that, I would obviously appreciate it. If there's a topic that you want me to cover, you know, just send it to me. I would love recommendations, anything that you all need. So that's I think that's all I have to cover as far as announcements so enjoy the episode hey guys welcome back to making a dietitian and I'm your host Cassie Blanford and today we are going to be covering neoplasms or cancer um and talking about the pathophysiology as far as it goes Just a warning, you're probably going to hear a lot of background noise because we are in the process of moving out. So just a warning, you know, whatever you hear, obviously other people live here, so it's a little busy. But like I said, we're going to be covering neoplasms or tumors. And today I'm going to be covering the pathophysiology and characteristics, oh my goodness, of neoplasms and then in the following episode I'm going to begin covering the medical nutrition therapy associated with cancer. So I'm not going to review normal cells because this is something that it's probably going to come up in one of your biology or anatomy classes. I'm not too worried about going back over the structure of cells and but a neoplasm or tumor is defined as a cellular growth that is outside of bodily control. Because of this, the cells continue to reproduce at a very fast rate, much faster than necessary, and tend to have a normal shape, leading to their inability to function normally. This rapid growth rate means that these cells are taking vital nutrients from surrounding cells and creating pressure on the surrounding tissues, neither of which are good things. So, benign tumors are made up of differentiated cells that are pretty similar to normal cells they're not going to be super abnormally shaped or anything and their growth rate is going to be pretty slow so it's not going to be like crazy fast or anything and you know like it's still but it's still going to expand over time so an example of this is like a mole like uh i'm a redhead i have pale skin and i have like moles and that's like can be contributed to skin cancer it can't be then that's kind of like why you have to watch certain moles over time it's because it could be a benign tumor or could like 
turn into a benign tumor and it doesn't like they're not going to move it's not going to travel it's not going to spread but it's still there still not a good thing um like i said they are localized they're not going to spread throughout the body and truly benign tumors are localized and they're not going to be life-threatening unless they're located in a vital part of the body such as the brain so that's what a benign tumor is it's really not Obviously, it's concerning. I feel like, you know, any cancer is concerning, but a benign tumor can be treated easily, probably with a surgery because it's just going to be removed. It hasn't spread anywhere else. So you just kind of like remove it. So malignant tumors, on the other hand, are made of very abnormal sized and shaped cells that are not differentiated. So they cannot function normally. And when I say differentiated, it basically means that like whenever cells are produced, they are differentiated or like made to have a specific function so that they can do that specific function in whatever part of the body they're in. So if it was like a pancreatic beta cell, obviously it's located in your pancreas and it's going to be used to produce insulin. And that's why it's differentiated. Like it has a purpose, but malignant tumors their cells are not differentiated so they're not going to have that function so if you have a tumor or uh, an abnormal cell where a pancreatic beta cell is supposed to be it's not going to be producing insulin it's not going to be doing its job and that's going to wreak havoc all over your body um so they also have the ability to infiltrate other tissues surrounding them so they're going to be able to move to the surrounding tissues and other parts of the body through the blood and lymphatic system because of this, malignant tumors are often considered life-threatening life by tissue destruction and how fast they're able to spread. So the pathophysiology of cancer is that over time, the normal composition and organization of cells is absent and the DNA of the cells becomes altered. The mass will begin to grow rapidly, causing pressure on the surrounding cells and blood vessels to the point that the other tissues are not receiving the nutrients necessary to remain alive, so they become inflamed and possibly die. Obviously, as we talked about, inflammation is not good for your body. It causes stress. It causes a lot of other issues um, going on, and it's just like really not something that you want. Obviously, you often don't want yourselves to die, so there's that. Um, and just as I mentioned, the cancer cells are likely to break off and travel throughout the circulatory system and lymphatic system where they can infiltrate into adjacent tissue. Also, interesting fact is that cancer cells will often secrete enzymes that will break down proteins in cells, obviously adding to the destruction of the tumor. The inflammation and loss of normal cells then leads to a reduction of the tissue and organ function. So basically, you just have like a positive feedback loop going on. Whereas more cells are dying, there's more inflammation and infection leading to more cells dying and the process is just going to continue over time. So common warning signs of cancer are going to include unusual bleeding or discharge from anywhere in the body, changes in bowel or bladder habits, change in wart or mole, a sore that does not heal, unexplained weight loss is a really big one for dietitians. Um, anemia or low hemoglobin and persistent fatigue, persistent cough or hoarseness without reason, and then a solid lump that's often painless in the breast or testes or anywhere else in the body. So some local effects of cancer 
These are often going to be present after a while once the tumor has progressed. It's going to include things such as pain caused from pressure of the tumor on the surrounding area, um, you know, from stretching of the visceral capsule, inflammation, infection, ischemia, and bleeding. And obstruction is also a localized effect that can be seen when a duct or passage has a tumor growing inside or outside of it, causing it to become blocked. So a good example of this is, you know, you have like you have an obstruction in the colon blocking the digestive tract or in the bronchi blocking airflow or possibly even the nervous system or endocrine system. So either way, if you have a tumor on the inside and it continues to grow, you could have complete blockage. If you have a tumor on the outside and as it's growing, it's causing pressure, it's going to slowly push that duct into it is like skinnier and skinnier until like it's getting really difficult for things to move past it. So lastly, localized effects may include necrosis as cells are dying and that can lead to infection of the area. So some systemic effects are going to include weight loss contributed to or contributed by anorexia, fatigue, pain, stress, and increased nutrient needs. And I don't remember if I said this in the last episode when I say anorexia. I think I did say this in the last episode. But when I say anorexia, it just means like decreased appetite, not anorexia nervosa, the eating disorder. Two different things. Um, so you could also have anemia resulting from anorexia, chronic bleeding, and bone marrow depression. Severe fatigue is another effect caused by inflammatory changes anemia, stress, and treatment schedules. And then infection, bleeding, and perineoplastic syndromes are additional systemic effects. So tumors are going to spread in one of two ways. Um, I've kind of already mentioned that in many cases, you'll see that like cancer cells will break away from the tumor and then they're going to travel throughout the lymphatic channels or the blood and become lodged in a new part of the body that has like really good resources and it can reproduce rapidly. The the other manner of spreading is going to be known as seeding. And this is whenever cancer cells spread through fluids or other membranes. Um, It's a little harder. Like I personally hadn't really heard of seeding for me, like personally, but can include ovarian cancer where like the cancer cells are able to move around the membrane throughout the cavity. I guess like because it's an enclosed cavity they're just like able to kind of spread that way. So the etiology of cancer or etiology uh, however you want to pronounce it is going to be that carcinogens are yeah, I mean, if you know what carcinogens are, it's going to be like genetic factors, viruses, radiation, chemicals, biological factors, aging, diet, hormones, smoking, and food additives. They're going to play a really big role in this. So, and like aging comes into play because like, I think it's like, if every man lives long enough, he's going to develop prostate cancer if given the chance. Or radiation being, oh, like, being out in the sun too long. Or, I guess, being exposed to, like, actual radiation, like, from a nuclear power plant. Go to Chernobyl. Um, And viruses can carry 
some. I think like whenever they change, I don't want to go into detail because like I'm not like a hundred percent. So yeah. Um. So cancer cells develop over a long period of time as the cells are exposed to numerous risk factors or carcinogens or a few risk factors numerous times. So like the sun being exposed to direct sunlight without any thing on over and over and over again can cause changes to your DNA. Um, I'm not going to say like we fully understand the development of cancer because like obviously some people are affected more than others when it comes to things like smoking. Like one person could smoke a pack a day and never develop cancer and then another person could do the same thing and develop it pretty young. So like we don't know everything. But the stages of carcinogenesis are as follows. So first, you have the initiating factors cause the first irreversible changes to the cell DNA. This does not lead to an active neoplasm. And second, exposure to promoters later causes further changes in DNA, resulting in less differentiation and increased rates of mitosis. Third, you have continued exposure and changes in DNA, resulting in a malignant tumor, tumor that is capable of growth and invasion of local tissues. And then fourth, changes in the regulation of growth results in cells that are capable of detaching from the tumor and spreading. So that's just kind of like the etiology of it. So lastly, I'm going to like do a really brief thing about treatment. So treatment can include surgeries, which is the removal of a tumor and surrounding tissues and likely the surrounding lymph nodes as well. Radiation may be used along with other treatments or alone and causes mutations or alterations in the targeted DNA, thus preventing mitosis or causing immediate cell death. Chemotherapy is when specific anti-neoplastic drugs are used to target the tumor and interfere with protein synthesis and DNA replication at different points in the tumor cell cycle, thus destroying the cell. So I changed my mind and decided I'm going to go ahead and do the medical nutrition therapy for cancer in this episode just because the pathophys wasn't like a lot, a lot. So um, why not? I don't I mean, why not do it? Um, so yeah, first I'm going to cover chemo preventative practices in nutrition I know that medical nutrition therapy typically is going to focus more on like treating the disease once it has already occurred, but like I've told you multiple times, I'm all about preventative measures, so I'm going to go through those first. So there's mixed evidence on vitamin D. Some studies are showing that there is a correlation between low vitamin D levels and an increased risk of cancer due to the increased push for sunscreen and like less direct sunlight. But on the other hand, obviously, uh, like I just talked about, if you have increased direct sunlight, you can be exposed to radiation and thus lead to cancer. So, I mean, I'm, like I just said, I'm a redhead. I'm super pale. I burn, like, to a crisp so easily. So, I always wear sunscreen. But I also take a multivitamin. So, I get vitamin D. But luckily, taking 800 
I use of vitamin D per day to maintain normal serum 25 OHD levels is considered safe. Um, again, going back to coffee and tea, coffee is going to contain various antioxidants and phenolic compounds. And some of these compounds have anti-cancer properties. And then tea is also a good source of these. Uh, green tea specifically is going to contain a lot of things. I don't really I know how to pronounce the word. Cachins? Cachins? Mm, don't quote me on that. Um, that possess biological activity with antioxidants, anti-angiogenics, and anti-proliferative properties. So we love that. Uh, folic acid and folate are not just necessary in preventing birth, birth defects. Folate is also necessary for DNA methylation, synthesis, and repair. And several studies have suggested that higher folate, inta folate intake is related to decreased pancreatic and colon cancer risks. Um, moving on, we have fruits and veggies. So an intake of fruit is associated with protecting against mouth, pharynx, larynx, esophageal, cervix, lung, and stomach cancers. And then non-starchy veggies are associated with protection against mouth, pharynx, larynx, and esophageal cancer, as well as stomach cancer. The anti-carcinogenic agents found in fruits and veggies include antioxidants such as vitamin C, vitamin E, and selenium, and then also phytochemicals. These substances are necessary in multiple functions of the body, including the detoxification of enzymes, inhibition of nitrosamine, nitrosamine, anyway, formation, uh, provision for substrate formation of chemotherapy agents, dilution and binding of carcinogens in the digestive tract, alterations of hormone metabolism, and antioxidant effects. And then lastly, we have soy and phytoestrogen in modest amounts protect against breast cancer. Um, big but, women who have been diagnosed with hormone-sensitive cancers, such as breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, anything like that, should limit their intake of soy, while men with hormone-sensitive cancers, such as like prostate cancer, may benefit from the regular consumption of soy. So keep that in mind. A little fun fact for you. So medical nutrition therapy is how we as dietitians assess, assist in helping to heal or treat a specific disease or condition in the hopes of reversing or stopping the progression of the disease. Nutrition screenings should be done when there's a diagnosis and then throughout the treatment and recovery. This is going to be used to obtain more information and identify nutrition problems. During the assessment, a review of the patient's appetite and oral diet should be noted, as well as the patient's symptoms, weight status, comorbidities, and laboratory studies. And then a nutrition-focused physical exam is also recommended to notice specific nutrient-related like, issues. That probably sounded like a lot. I will have another episode at some point where I do go like into more detail explaining the nutrition care process and how these are used because it is kind of a lot and it was personally kind of overwhelming for me when I took medical nutrition therapy and I didn't really 
understand the nutrition care like process or how to fill it out and it's different anywhere you work um like some places are gonna have it like already built into the computer so you just kind of like click and choose which options you need and then other places you have to like write out everything so it's gonna be different and I'll go into more detail as to like what a nutrition focused physical exam is um you know how to find like what laboratory values which you can also go back I think in the micronutrient episode I might have talked about laboratory values if I didn't they're super easy to find um online so and every hospital is going to use something different so their ranges could all be a little off from each other and I think in our class we like we had certain ranges that we used but then on exam she would be like just tell us if they were high or low because you never know what range is you're going to have wherever you're working. So yeah, I'll go through that in another episode sometime. So just like be on the lookout for that. So starting with energy needs, those who are suffering from cancer are going to have increased needs to maintain a healthy weight as well as prevent the unintentional weight loss that is associated with cancer and cancer treatments. So I'm going to go through a list of like what the ranges would be basically for everyone. It's either like what is recommended now for a healthy individual within a normal BMI, which BMI, yeah, I know, um, or it's going to be increased. So if they are suffering from cancer, have a nutritional repletion and they need weight gain, or need nutritional repletion and weight gain, we're going to recommend 30 to 35 calories per kilogram of body weight. If they have cancer that's inactive and non-stressed, it's going to be 25 to 30 kcal per kilogram of body weight. Cancer that is hypermetabolic and stressed is going to be 30 to 35 kcal per kilogram of body weight. Hematopoietic poetic cell transplant sorry i know i'm butchering some of these words is going to be 30 to 35 kcal per kilogram of body weight and then if they are suffering from sepsis it's going to be 25 to 30 kcal per kilogram of body weight and this is all actual body weight not ideal i believe pretty sure because that's how it is for protein as well and speaking of protein, um, protein needs are going to be increased during times of stress and illness. The treatment also requires an increased protein to build and repair tissues. So anyone who's going through radiation, chemo, surgery, anything like that, obviously they're going to have increased protein needs as well. So factors determining protein requirements include their degree of malnutrition, extent of disease, degree of stress, and ability to metabolize and use proteins. So protein requirements could be anywhere from like 1.2 grams per kilogram of actual body weight to 1.5 grams per kilogram of actual body weight. Obviously, this is going to be super individualized. You can't just say, oh, we need to use this one range for everyone. Um, It really, really just depends on the individual and what you deem best for them. So... Going into fluid, fluid imbalances are a risk for those in cancer care too. So to ensure a patient is receiving adequate fluid, a good guideline is going to be either 20 to 40 milliliters per kilogram or one milliliter per calorie consumed. 
So if they're on a diet where they're getting like 1800 calories, they should be consuming at least 1800 milliliters of water per day. Um, things that are likely to affect fluid balance in cancer patients are going to be fever, ascites, edema, fistulas, vomiting and diarrhea, impaired renal function, or medications. And then also, um, I talk about supplements a lot. And, you know, whenever we're talking about good, like a general multivitamin, but dietary supplements are not going to be cancer preventing and high dose supplements can have cancer promoting effects. So at most, you should just be taking like a multivitamin that's going to meet 100% of your needs. You don't need to be taking like a, a, a ton of iron or a ton of like something else. Like you don't need that in your body. So... Sorry, I don't know if you guys could hear that. Because um, like, we don't know, you know, some things are going to be cancer-promoting. We don't know if, like, what, if treatments are working or if, like, your supplements are masking, what is actually going on with your body. So you don't want to be taking supplements and the doctors think, like, oh, we can see that these levels are back up. That's a good thing. And really, it's just because you're taking supplements and your body isn't actually producing that or storing it in the way that it should be. And you're actually still sick and it's just not showing. Um, so, yeah. So, besides all that, a big part of being a dietitian is going to be managing the symptoms of cancer and cancer treatments. So, I'm going to kind of go through like a list. It's, I mean, it is kind of boring. But this is going to be like whenever you're doing those nutrition care plans and you have a patient who needs help managing their symptoms you know so that they can maintain their weight or they can you know work their way up into being stronger and healthier this is where you're going to come in big time so if a patient is suffering from weight loss which in most cancers chance in most cases an individual suffering from cancer is going to have weight loss it's going to be unintentional, but it's it's going to be happening. So, strategies to combat this is going to be small, frequent meals, nutrient-dense foods, oral supplements, um, such as, like, the Boost drinks. I don't really know. Like, I mean, I want to say, like, like, the Ensure and the Boost and everything like that. Those are really good. And the non-fat dried milk. I remember we talked about this in class, the non-fat dried milk, and she was saying that, like, sometimes patients will, you know, be recommended to put the non-fat dried milk into regular milk and mix it up, and it can give, like, a lot of extra protein, a lot of extra fat, a lot, uh, this says non-fat, so I guess, like, not fat, but a lot of extra protein and calories, and it's, like, really easy because it's just milk in milk, so... If the patient is suffering from decreased appetite or anorexia, we would recommend that they eat when feeling well, eat in a pleasant atmosphere, and consume nutrient-dense foods because it's likely that they're not going to be able to eat a lot in volume. So if they're getting those nutrient-dense foods and calorie-dense foods, it's going to be a lot easier to maintain their calorie intake. If they're suffering from nausea and vomiting, we recommend that they sip on room temperature uh, clear liquids 
probably something that provides calories, so like a juice, um, I would be careful with juice, probably like a milk, um, just anything with calories, because we want to make sure they are getting enough calories, um, avoid high fat, greasy fried foods, and avoid foods with strong odors, these are really gonna, like, I mean, set off that nausea and that vomiting, it's really just gonna be like, mm. um, Allow warm foods to cool before eating and preferably have someone else take them from the oven and then eat bland, easy to digest foods. You don't want anything that's going to like risk upsetting your stomach, anything that's going to risk like burning your throat, making you feel gross, anything like that. So if the patient is suffering from diarrhea we recommend that they consume plenty of clear liquids. We really do not want to risk anyone becoming dehydrated. Um, decrease the intake of insoluble fiber. So this is going to be foods that promote stooling, such as nuts, raw fruits and vegetables, and whole grains. And then we recommend an increased intake of soluble fiber. This is going to be foods that delay gastric emptying and slow the transit through the GI tract. And this is going to be things such as applesauce, bananas, canned fruit, white rice, and pastas. On the other hand, if the patient is suffering from constipation, we recommend the opposite. So decrease their intake of insult or decrease intake of soluble fiber and then increase intake of insoluble fiber. Um, also drink plenty of fluids and exercise to increase the motility so the more you're walking around the more your body's gonna be pushing stuff through if the patient is suffering from a sore throat we recommend that they eat soft moist foods we don't want anything that's gonna possibly like cause abrasions on the throat that's gonna like cause tears or anything like that add gravies and sauces to kind of soften that up and make it easier to go down, um, avoid dry coarse foods, avoid aggravating foods, you know, like alcohol, citrus, caffeine, tomatoes, peppers, anything that could risk like burping or burning up the throat, anything that could risk like upsetting your stomach, anything like that. And then experiment with food temperatures. If something cool helps, then like you can definitely hear them. Sorry. Um, you know, you can um, experiment with foods. So, like, cool temperatures may be relieving, but also, like, warm temperatures might. So, like, a hot tea or something. Um, don't do caffeinated tea, but anything like that might help. So, you just want to kind of experiment with what you think is going to be best. Um, if you have a sore mouth or thrush, Maintain good oral hygiene, eat soft, moist foods, add gravies and sauces. It's going to be a lot like the sore throat. Uh, avoid aggravating foods. And then again, experiment with food temperatures. So then if they are suffering from fatigue, you want to consume easy to eat prepared foods, nutrient dense foods, and get assistance with food acquisition and prep. So it's going to be hard for you to spend energy cooking food and standing there waiting for food and going and buying food like it's just going to make you even more tired and you're not going to have the energy to even eat 
food. So on the other hand, it's going to be a lot better if there's already food ready, if someone can prepare that food for you, or you can just buy food that all you have to do is stick in the microwave. Um, you know, like you're going to be tired. You're going to get tired eating the meal. So you want to make sure that you're eating something that's nutrient dense so that whenever you do get tired, you're still, you've eaten enough that it's enough calories. Um, so neutropenia, you know, you, which is like, you, you have a lowered immune system, so you don't want to run the risk of having a foodborne illness. So frequent washing of hands, wearing a face mask, keeping food prep surfaces clean, washing all your fruits and vegetables, and then when in doubt, throw it out. If you think your meat smells gross, throw it out. If you think something's been sitting out for too long, throw it out. If you think something looks a little questionable, throw it out. You do not want to risk getting sick. It's going to cause us more problems. It's not worth it. Um, if an individual is suffering from altered taste, maintain good oral hygiene. Try marinades and spices. Use plastic utensils um, because sometimes like metallic taste can be a problem. Try cooler foods rather than warm foods. Um, have a good alternate protein source because meats a lot of times are going to become problematic i know like here we've everyone almost everyone has had covid at some point and some of i mean one of my roommates isn't even over her like tasting thing it's like just now coming back and it's been almost three months so um I guess still don't think she's able to eat meats. So you just want to have like an alternate protein source, whether that's, you know, nuts and anything like that, or it's legumes or just anything, anything that's not meat really. And then it also says lemon. So I think lemon can help with the taste issues. So, and then the last two symptoms that patient may be suffering from if it's thick in saliva, you want to recommend that they sip on liquids throughout the day to keep oral cavity moist. Use club soda or seltzer water to thin oral secretions. Try, oh my gosh, guafenicin. Sure, to thin secretions. And then cool mist humidifier while sleeping. All those. And then the last one is going to be exerostoma. And this, to treat this, again, sip on the liquids throughout the day. You want to try consuming tart foods to stimulate your saliva production. Eat moist foods, add sauces and gravies, and maintain cord oral hygiene. Um, I know that was a lot. And it's going to be able to be found in the book that I am... Um, putting in the show notes just to let you guys know but it's I mean pretty self-explanatory it's really like I said treating the symptoms um a lot of times there's not really much else that we can do once it's progressed I mean it's not miracle workers and like I've said before like you there's not like a miracle food out there to keep you healthy all the time so um at a certain point it is just treating the symptoms when it comes to cancer so but that's all I really have for this episode and 
the next episode that I post is going to be a bonus episode. So be on the lookout for that.